Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Show me the magic Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies What a scene Of your Hollywood song Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast I'm Matt Looker I'm Ed Williamson We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans And each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles this week, that film is Chapter 27, a feature film debut from writer-director J.P. Schaefer, which stars Jared Leto as real-life killer Mark Chapman. The film depicts Chapman's infatuation with J.D. Salinger's 1951 novel The Catcher in the Rye as he obsesses over and ultimately carries out his plans to shoot and murder John Lennon. Uh, normally, I might say a little bit more about the film in this intro, but that really is all there is to it. So I'll jump straight into the first question that comes to mind about this film, which is... Even allowing for the idea that all art is subjective <laughs> and therefore it can be argued that all art has merit, yeah. should this film be allowed to exist? Uh, yes. Yeah. Any, I mean, any film about anything should be allowed to exist. You know, I don't, I, I don't think anyone should have prevented this being made. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's really contributing anything to any kind of discourse uh around issues like mental illness or gun violence uh is a more interesting question and i mean well i say it's a more interesting question i'm about to say no it doesn't (laughs) case closed (laughs) yeah exactly it's not even a question it's just question and answered yeah it it doesn't contribute anything to those things i think you're right but the fact that it possibly should is worth exploring yes you know it's worth saying that there is a there's a feeling about this film that actually it's it's a bit in poor taste. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about this at a time when the film currently sits at a 18% score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty damning. 
despite the fact that it actually enjoyed some relative film festival successes. So it feels like people tend to take quite a personal reaction to the film about their dislike over it. Uh, and, you know, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because it, it seems to... Uh, I wonder if glamorise is the right... No, I don't think glamorise is the right word, to be fair to it. I think perhaps what it does is treat Mark Chapman as special in some way. Uh, there are a couple of ways it does this. One is in having a very good-looking, charismatic, famous... He was fairly famous at the time. He was very famous at the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less famous than he is now, but still. Jared... Um, are we saying Leto or Leto? Well, oh, um, I think it's... I'm, I'm going to go with um, secret option C, Leto. Leto? <laughs> oh, okay. Jared Leto? Jared Leto. Let's Jared go. Leto. I think I hear Jared Leto. Should we go Leto? Not. Let's go Leto. Let's go Leto. Let's, let's establish a, a consistent use of, the, of Leto. Yeah, okay. Podcast. That, that is now Beatles Films Podcast house style. <laughs> Jared Leto. Anyway, so the fact that they have Jared Leto as the lead and the fact that... He affected a big physical transformation to play that character. That is the kind of action that tends to get a lot of press attention. It tends to get a lot of plaudits for the actor. It's always an actor, never an actress, who is um, praised for these things. Disagree, but go on. Interesting. But there is always a narrative around these things. You think around sort of Daniel Day-Lewis, or you think around films like... The Revenant, which is less sort of method actor thing, but certainly the reason Leonardo DiCaprio won an Oscar for that is because there was so much narrative around the film about like how much stress and strain he had to go through and how like physically torturous the whole ordeal was. I feel like that always feeds into the idea that a, a performance is special or remarkable in some way. Disagree, but go on. <laughs> Okay. Is this the whole podcast? Is just me making statements? I'm offering nothing but where I disagree <laughs> with you without even any kind of comeback. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I think what, what happens when you have um, a, a sort of charismatic lead at the heart of a film who carries the whole thing, which is what Jared Leto does here, it, it, it tends to put you in mind of the idea that the person they're playing is special or remarkable in some way because they, they, as the actor, will allied with the character they're playing. And I think the, the way that was done is in slightly poor taste because it makes you think of Mark Chapman as being a, a remarkable figure in some way. And I think also uh, there are certain other ways that I think we you know we can get onto later on in terms of the way his character is portrayed that makes you think he is special in some way and actually quite apart from it having anything to do with the Beatles or John Lennon cinema and TV does seem to have moved on now a little bit from this idea of treating murderers serial killers and so so forth as special remarkable uh characters to be that you're supposed to be sort of fascinated by I've seen sort of documentaries recently about things like school shootings or mass shootings in America that deliberately don't tell you the name of the person who carried out the shooting. Um, and I think that's a really positive step. W with something like this, I think that they accord Mark Chapman much too much importance and significance. 
Disagree. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I had to choose at what point I said that then. Yeah. Um, so uh, should I go through my disagrees mm. uh, just quickly? Um, first do. of all, by the way, I, I think that you're half right about Leonardo DiCaprio in the Oscar for Revenant. I think probably what gave him greater standing in his nomination that year was the fact that he hadn't won. It was it was widely recognised that he had. It was long. It was a long time coming. But yes, yeah, I mean, so that, I think is that true. sort of led to a lot of that. You're absolutely right in that the majority of actors that undergo this kind of transformation for a role uh, are male. Mm-hmm. Apart from the fact that I think one of the forerunners for this film was, what I mean by that is, a a similar film that enjoyed success before this one was potentially Monster, starring Charlize Theron, who yes. also went through a sort of a, a sim, similar-ish transformation for that role. Mm. And I feel like that kind of... It's an it's an outlier. Disagree. <laughs> I, I I will say just just to interject a little bit. I think I, so. I think that male and female actors, when they affect a big physical transformation, that is noted always uh, in selling the film, the marketing of the film. But uh, they're framed in very different ways. Okay. So I think fair. someone like Charlize Theron, who is very very naturally beautiful, um, as soon as she Disagree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Obviously, don't disagree. <laughs> as soon as she does a role where the main thing is she isn't wearing any makeup or she has makeup on that makes her look like she's not wearing any makeup, that is then seen as, oh, this is incredibly brave, like sort of yeah. uglying up, if you like. What you never get is things like Renee Zellweger being recognised for the preparation she did for Bridget Jones's diary which in which she put on not stupid amounts of weight, weight, but some weights to make her look less Hollywood, and also went and worked as an intern in a publishing house in London in preparation mm. for that. Nobody ever says, it, it, nobody ever talks about that in the same way they do about sort of Daniel Day Lewis or something like that. Yeah, you're you're right. I think there's probably a lot of different elements to that, though. I mean, we're very quickly getting off topic from ch- chapter twenty-seven, but I think there's a lot of factors involved in. I, I think a lot of high-profile roles undergo a certain degree of research and uh, training yeah body training physical training mm-hmm. right so whether that is beefing up for a role like getting muscular for a role or you know doing research like you know tom cruise for classical actually trying to go undercover and you know hide and, and trying to like hide in plain sight and you know yeah. there's a certain degree of all of that uh, i think for for a lot of roles but I think you are right in that it tends to get reported more for male actors than, than female actors, which I guess is your point. Yes. I suppose. Agree. Okay. So we've, um, <laughs> we've, solved, we've solved sexism then. Yes, exactly. So, yes, so chapter 27. If, nothing, if we'd achieve nothing else in this episode, solving sexism feels like it's quite high on the list. Yeah. But the other thing that you said there that I disagreed with, um, kind of disingenuously, mm. uh, if I'm being honest, <laughs> um, is that serial killers are treated differently now uh than they were at the time this film was made because i kind of feel like that's possibly not true like we still have an influx of films being made about serial killers like i I was watching this film and thinking about recent depictions of zach efron as ted bundy david tarrant as dennis nilson like you know these these things still happen oh a lot but i'm not saying they don't i'm saying they're treated differently so so the interesting so that thing with david tennant playing dennis nielsen on itv that was 
treated differently insofar as there was absolutely no killing in that show. Mm. Um, you didn't see anything of any of the violence at all. It's literally just uh, his interviews. And it's not a big sort of showcase performance. He's not grandstanding in it. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. It's a different way of saying this. <laughs> the, entire, the entire show is, is built on and sold on David Tennant's performance. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is grandstanding. Like you, you have a, you have a show like that is built around a serial killer, yeah. and you have um, a high-profile actor playing that serial killer, and all of the reportage around that show was about his performance as that as that person. Yeah, uh, that is fair. And <laughs> I realise now that I am wrong. <laughs> yes, score one. Um, but I, but I, I do think that. Uh, you know, going back to your original point about Jared Leto um, does do this thing where he com- really fully commits beyond the extent or, that is normally expected of any actor in any role. Yeah. You know, he is possibly more than any other working actor today recognized as the most um, uh, outrageously method actor. Yeah. Um, you know, the 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 is 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 working today, like I say. I don't think that it detracts from his performance, though. I think it's it's a great. I, I do think he's very very good in the role as Mark Chapman. Mm-hmm. I think he puts in an incredible performance, and I think that there's a lot of there's a lot to be said about on set um, stories about Jared Leto being staying in character, being in character, the things he gets up to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think any of that takes away from the fact that he really is an incredible actor. Yeah, I, th- I think he's a. Look, I think he's. I think he's a very good actor. Um, Disagree. No. But, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a thing for the whole thing. Well, well but, but you know, so you say he's an incredible actor. I say he's a very good actor. You know, mm. essentially, we're saying the same thing. I, I, I think. Um, one of the things that's problematic about it, it's interesting that in recent, I feel it's only in the last few months, is that there have been lo- lots of actors coming out. I remember Will Poulter said this, that actually method acting is is a bit of an excuse to just be a dickhead on set mm. and everyone else has to deal with you. And so you think about Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot. So he, he, he stayed in character the entire time, which meant that he... He he carried on uh, not uh, being disabled effectively, or you know, uh, acting as though he was disabled to the extent that the crew had to sort of carry him to the toilet and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Now that makes for a really good story about oh, isn't it amazing how intense this guy is? But actually, you strip that away and you think he's, he's actually acting like a bit of a dickhead, right? It's just all, all these people are being paid less than him have to do all this extra work to accommodate him. You know? Yeah, you're right. I I think that, and again, we should separate this out. I think that. I mean, there's loads to be said about method acting. I mm. think of all people, interestingly, Robert Patterson once made a, an interesting insight about method acting, which is that no one method acts a nice guy, <laughs> right? Yes. Like it's always it's always for like a bit of a dickhead role. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting also that you mentioned about Daniel Day Lewis um, having to be taken to the toilet. A much more recent example, of the exact same thing, is Jared Leto in Morbius. Because in his role in that film, he plays like a frail guy that has to he uses like walking sticks to to walk because he suffers from a like congenital disease. Yeah, and the same thing happened on the set that he 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 had to be taken to for toilet breaks because he decided that he needs to stay in character. Yeah. throughout filming. Yeah, 
we have to separate, I think, whether or not the uh, the actual method that an actor needs to take to portray a role from the result. Whatever gets you to that point is one thing, but the actual thing itself is worthy of merit. Yes, no. So, I like, so, so, I don't agree that that Jared Leto or any other method actor should be running havoc on on his co-stars or crew members and so that, and and forcing them to be uncomfortable mm. as a result of what they think they have to do in order to just act. Yeah. But at the same time, what appears on screen is is quite remarkable, and I I, I think I measure a an actor's ability based on whether or not I can hold two of their roles side by side and genuinely can't believe it's the same person. And I do that yeah. frequently with Jared Leto. Like you, you can take, especially, particularly his latter day roles, you can take two of those side by side and just can't believe it's the same person behind both. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't even disagree with you. I suppose like, well, look, at some point we need to bring this back to chapter 27. And so, you're right, you're right. But also yeah, this is a key, but, I mean, it's worth pointing out that chapter 27 the entire film is Jared Leto. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so there, there's a there's a reason to spend this much time on his performance. I oh, think because absolutely. there is yeah. this is a film that has no subplot, no deviation from just this this short period of time where Mark Chapman plots and carries out his murder of John Lennon. Mm. So it's a very singularly focused film. Yeah, I think that merits a, a a sort of a lengthy discussion on Jared Leto's performance of that because it is built around him. He also, as we as we discussed just before we started recording this, that he he serves as the executive producer on the film as well. So you could you could say that the the focus of the film and the some of the creative decisions that went into the film he has played a part in. This is very much. A film based around him at his uh, at his bidding. Yeah. Um, it, it, again, I don't disagree with any of that, <laughs> but I think, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, to sort of uh, try and frame this conversation we've been having about method acting back in terms of uh, of chapter twenty seven, I, th- I think what I'm trying to say is that uh, the reason it sort of it, it feels a little to me like poor taste is that it feels almost like a showcase for Jared uh, Leto to Leto. We decided Leto earlier, and no, like, I thought it was, was Leto. No, no, we because we decided Leto earlier, <laughs> oh, and, then, Leto? Oh, you, okay. you, and then you said Leto like three times, and I was like, "What are we?" Anyway, like how, okay, fine. So how what style? We going Leto? How style Leto? St- st- style right. is, okay. How style is Leto? Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> Let's stick with that. Okay, yes, sorry. So um, I feel it, it feels a little bit like a platform. Jared Leto to, <laughs> to demonstrate, hey, here here is my big like method acting chops. I've gone through so much pain and preparation to do this. You know the weight he put on. He was apparently microwaving and drinking pints of ice cream all the time. Yeah. And then in order to take the weight off, he basically starved himself for ten days and only drank water with lemon and cayenne pepper and all this kind of stuff. So you know all of this stuff is obviously dropped into the marketing and the press releases and stuff. Um, I'm not suggesting that that that, that kind of uh, that he is doing that cynically. If that's his, if that is his, that's how he prepares for a role. Then, uh, then fair enough. But I do think it, it just makes it feel a bit like a platform to him to sh- for him to show off a bit. Yeah. And if if this was a fictional film about a guy who murdered a guy, fine, fair enough. This is 
a film about, you know, among the most famous assassinations in history of one of the most loved men in history. And I think perhaps all that I've just said sort of, it just leads to me to uh, to a feeling of sort of insensitivity about the whole thing. And so I guess I'm in this position with this film where I feel like I didn't really enjoy a lot about it. Yeah. But I'm struggling to put my finger on what objectively the film does that's wrong. Yeah. And I think that's 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 kind of where I'm at now. So I find myself in a position where, as I'm going to do now, I keep I keep finding what I think of flaws in the film and then playing devil's advocate and arguing a, a, a rationale for it. Yeah. So here's one instance of that. Here's a different angle on what you just said about um, Jared Leto showing off in his role. Mm. He is someone who is a is an incredibly committed actor. Yeah. He has decided that this the film it has merit. This film that has you know has, has been written by Jeffrey Shepard wants to actually play the central role and and he wants to commit to playing that role. Yeah. And in doing that, he puts his body through, you know, all those things to, in order to physically transform himself as close as possible to to uh, what Mark Chapman actually looks like. And then, when it comes to the film being complete, him being presented as a method actor and the, the work that he did to end up portraying that role actually becomes quite key to marketing the film yeah. and helping that film achieve a degree of success mm-hmm. not only his own success in winning awards at film festivals and stuff and i feel like that, that i can't really begrudge that like I, I i know what you're saying about you know it feels like uh, he, he's, take, he's decided to take on this film in order to sort of show about his own abilities as as an actor who is willing to go those lengths. I'm not saying he did it as cynically as that. I'm, right. say, I'm saying that that is the effect of it. But but then I feel like, you know, when you say that um, some of those things are in the marketing and the press release of the film, that's as much down to the marketing as it is down to Jared Leto's decision yep. um, to, to have taken that on board. And and I'm arguing this to myself as well. I, I'm in the same position as you in that I completely agree with what you're saying, but also yep. I guess I can, can see a counterpoint for it. Yeah. And I feel this way about a lot of things about the film. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Why does this film seem insensitive when there are lots of other films out there about serial killers and killers, assassinations um, that we would watch and enjoy and maybe not feel such a, a 
personal repulsion about? Well, I mean, the the personal repulsion thing is fairly obvious in that we're, we're Beatles fans. We're speaking at the moment to an audience of Beatles fans who I can imagine w- would not have enjoyed this film very much. So, so would you say that, oh, this is dreadful, I'm trying to think of an example, any film about a high-profile murder or, or, or assassination where the audience felt an affinity with the victim... Mm. Do you think it has the same effect, or do you think it's quite singularly focused in this film? Uh, no, I don't think it necessarily has the same effect. So if you think about uh, Milk, about the yeah, life and then assassination yeah. of, of Harvey Milk, um, I, I, I don't think necessarily that that... I'm not saying that all films that deal with this subject matter are in poor taste. I'm saying there's a way to deal with the subject matter that means it can be done without without poor taste. And and I think that's what I'm trying to get at. So what what do you think it is about this film that fails to do that? I think it is probably that it is not at all interested in Mark Chapman's mental health problems at all. There was, of course, the film that came out around the same time, sort of famously Chapter 27, was released around the same time as uh, The Killing of John Lennon, which is a much better film um and it's uh, which we'll cover separately at some point but that is a much better film and then i will decide if i agree or disagree with that (laughs) statement um but the difference between them other than the fact that the killing of john lennon is a much more sort of visually stimulating film but in terms of how they handle things the killing of john lennon covers a good three months or so before chapman went to new york for the first time and so it does at least explore the idea that this guy was was brought to this uh, point. And I'm not saying that means it's sympathetic to him necessarily, but it does at least entertain the idea that people with mental health problems end up there because of a variety of factors. What Chapter 27 does is start out with him already in New York, I think. I'm not sure we see it. Maybe we briefly see him in Hawaii at the start. I'm not sure. But um, it, it, it doesn't give you... And in fact, it, the, the opening voiceover, which I think is taken from actual interview transcripts, I should say for context that this is based on a book called Let Me Take You Down by Jack Jones, who went and... Uh, I know the title, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, who went and interviewed... Chapman in jail. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm right in saying that the voiceover you hear in this is Chapman's own words spoken by Jared Leto. I would love to know whether or not that is taken directly from the interview or whether that is written because the opening voiceover for the film very much plays on the opening like uh, first couple of paragraphs of Catching the Rye. Right, yeah. But he says specifically at the start... Um, I suppose you want to know about, you know, my dad and, that's and how he treated that's taken me badly. The right. uh, oh, is it right? Yeah. So, okay. it, so it's, but also, but it, he could have easily have said that in the interview. But in catching, right. in catching the riot, the very, I, I remember the very beginning of that first chapter. He talks about you probably want to talk to my parents, but I uh, have no interest in saying that, and they'd probably get really annoyed if if I right. Um, okay. <laughs> anyone listening, massively paraphrasing this <laughs> classic novel that I haven't memorized word for word, but no, no, essentially no. he um, he does he mentions he talks about how he doesn't really want to get into 
the the background of his parents and his upbringing. Right. Yeah. So it, 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 either way, whether it's him paraphrasing or him quoting or mm. him him saying it, the thing he says at the start is, "I suppose you want to know about my dad and how he treated me, but I'm not going to talk about any of that." And so immediately it sets the tone for this is just about a guy who is already at this place mm-hmm. and it, 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 whatever, whatever, wherever his mental health issues come from, this is who he is. He's almost presented as an absolute, sure. really. And now we're going to hear a lot of the, the voices in his head, which, you know, I always feel like is a slightly dodgy cinematic shorthand for anyone with mental health problems is just hearing people whispering yeah. in their ears in sort yeah. of sinister voices and and I, and I think just all of this contributes to a sense that this is a, a guy I, I, I won't quite go as far as to say this but I think it, it almost paints him using the same sort of paintbrush that a director would in, in the genius movie if you mm. think about a beautiful mind or yeah. something like that. So the way, uh, what's it called? John Nash, who Russell mm-hmm. Crowe plays, is, is demonstrated to be a genius is that he will see all these sort of equations and things like floating around in the air and then they'll just kind of like perfectly coalesce into the answer and then yeah. everyone else is like, how the hell did this guy do this? You know, And I feel like similar techniques are being employed when they're framing Mark Chapman in this film. I understand it's not a complete literal parallel, but I I just feel like he is being framed as a person who is uh, special in some way, and I just find that quite problematic. Uh, And I think that's a very convincing argument, by the way. I think that when I... You're about to disagree with it. No, no, not at all. No, I I, I will say I will agree with that, probably actually as, as something that overrides my original answer to that question. When I said that I am struggling to put my finger on what my problem with this film is, mm. the best answer I could, I could come up with is, the, you know, the entire film has a, has a kind of like insidious tone to it, doesn't it? Mm. And I think that, or, or rather, I wondered if the reason for that is because the film forces you to experience the story from the killer's perspective. Right. Which doesn't often happen, I don't think. There is normally enough of a subplot or enough of... Uh, enough secondary characters for you to be able to sit outside of what the protagonist in this kind of film is doing. Mm. But actually, the film very much places you in his head the entire way through. Mm. And that's just an uncomfortable thing to do. And it doesn't happen often. I, I think that that's probably where I landed on why it may be uncomfortable or, or why why I, I felt a bit differently to this film than I would to any other kind of film that was dealing with a similar subject matter. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, as you say that, you know, so I was trying to think of, I'm sure there are other things that sort of tell you things through the killer's perspective. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe they're not all that successful. I remember the Elijah Wood film Maniac, which is right. one of the few films I've ever given one star, <laughs> which, which was uh, a point of view film with him as the point of view. And it took lots of liberties with that structure, but... Yeah, I suppose the idea of like putting your uh, putting the audience in the killer's head, if mm. you like, is is that you're supposed to be uncomfortable. Yes. Um, but I don't feel like this film made me uncomfortable. Made me uncomfortable in with any great skill in that regard. You know, forced me to confront 
things about human nature and maybe perhaps even things about myself that, that that's the kind of thing it should be trying to do. I don't feel like it did that. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting point. Because my next question on the same this subject... Is the, this is the argument episode, isn't it? We've been saying for a while that there's, <laughs> there's going to be a film that we, we really we disagree. disagree. I, but it's, the thing is, I just don't disagree. No. I just, I just, I, I feel like I'm still having a very much a bit of an internal struggle about how I feel about the film. You're right, um, okay. And it just, it might just be that I can't, I just can't articulate exactly what I think works and what I don't, I think doesn't work. Right. Um, so I win. And, and and that's no, that's putting me at odds with you because I feel like you <laughs> right, right. are quite adamant that you don't like much about the film at all. Mm-hmm. I feel like it has some redeeming qualities or rather, or rather the qualities in the film that even if I don't, even if I didn't enjoy them, I feel like it's working towards achieving a goal. Which yes. the film does. I think that whether or not you enjoy the experience of watching it, the film itself is a is quite a neat package mm. that does do the thing that it's trying to do. Which is whether you, whether you feel like there is a an argument for the approach not being appropriate, it's chosen its approach whether you like it or not. Yeah, and then it's seen that through in a way that actually fulfills that original idea it does what it sets out to yeah yeah that's yeah yeah, yeah, exactly yeah Yeah. no i think that's fair i mean listen it is completely fair to say that i think um my my opinion that it is sort of generally in bad taste as an entire piece has blinded me to its actual merits Mm. cinematically if you like and you know i i'm not pretending that this is an entirely uh objective opinion um, sometimes uh, you, because as a Beatles fan, is that is that why? Do you well, think, may, do you well, maybe uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that contributes to it. No, I mean, I'd like to think if this was about a, a murder of a real life person who I wasn't that interested in or invested in, I think you know maybe I'd feel the same. Certainly, in in terms of some of the choices it makes in its, yeah, uh, like the fact that they sh- shot outside the Dakota. And there's yeah the a casting decision which I'm sure we'll get onto later. Oh yes. Yeah, I th- I think it's fair to say that things like that have sort of blinded me to it a little bit, you know. And I I I'm not discussing this uh, in a critically objective way. It's fair to say. Well, I mean, but you know, at the same time, it is objective because I think it's it's worthy of discussion in of itself. I think that you know let, let's get into that a little bit because the. The fact that it was shot outside of Dakota yeah. is, you know, that's that's a real crux of the the department the debate we're having, right? So, yeah. the fact is, shooting a film—that's not even a good word to use, is it? <laughs> right, filming a movie, yeah. right, outside the actual Dakota, yeah, about the killing of John Lennon, in the exact same location, during a, a time when Yoko Ono was still living there, whether or not she was actually there during shooting. Yeah, yeah. Right? Is is objectively in poor taste. Yes. However, yeah. if you are set, setting out to make a film about this subject matter, being able to do it on location makes sense and that helps you achieve your goal. Yeah. So what's right and what's wrong? Yeah, I think... Uh, that, like, I mean, the, sorry, the answer to that is obviously doing what's morally right and not what's, <laughs> what's best for financial gain for the film. But, no, no, no. But, but yeah. you know, in the, in the, in the, in, with the idea of 
striving for achieving the the uh, artistic goal that you've set out for yourself there is a uh, there's there's an argument that they've tried to do that the best they can which means shooting on location yeah yeah and um so i think you know it's important to set it in context and by the way uh, the, the killing of John Lennon, which I was defending and praising earlier on, also shoots scenes outside the Dakota. Um, and we, we should also say for context that the scene of the actual murder was not shot at, at the Dakota. Yes, that was interesting. Shot yeah. Elsewhere, in, uh, they shot it somewhere down in Brooklyn, I think. But the scenes where Chapman is hanging around outside the building are shot outside the Dakota building. Mm. So, you know, I, in, in terms of the fact that I like the film The Killing of John Lennon. I don't really have a leg to stand on here, but we will get round to that episode <laughs> yeah, we'll get at some point, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, by which time I will have actually formulated arguments for it. <laughs> um, y- y- yes, I-, I think I just kept thinking, the thought that kept going through my head is Jared Leto is standing there. He's affected this physical transformation to look exactly like Mark Chapman. Sean... Lennon comes round to visit his mum and he doesn't know this is going... I mean, whether they were told or not, I don't know. But, I mean, you'd like to think they were. But, you know, Sean Lennon comes round to the Dakota to visit his mum and is greeted by the doppelganger of the man who murdered his father. Whether this situation would ever have happened, I don't know. But it's I mean, just I, what... I think, I think, first of all... It kept going I, through my I head, think it, you know. I, I think it fundamentally your argument there fundamentally ignores how film productions work <laughs> i think i don't think what you just you know, shoot a film on the street yeah and, yeah, and people I mean, are just walking there, around there it's like yeah. cameras there you know the streets cordoned off like yes. it's just that's just not a thing that can no, happen no no but, no, but, was... but and, and and you know in a serious answer to that question like that has to be taken into account in all honesty like, i, I yeah, understand yeah, what, yeah. i know what you're saying in theory well, but it, as a hypothetical that's in poor taste but also in practice it could never happen that way. So not it's exact- not saying the production would, would have to worry about. Well, not exactly that way. But, I mean, okay, so uh, take the idea that Sean Lennon comes around to visit his mum and he turns up at the street and it's all, like, cordoned off because something's being shot there. And he says, oh, what's being shot here? And he says, oh, it's a film about the murder of your dad. You know, um, And, again, he probably would have known it in advance. He would have been told it in advance. But I think also just cordoning off an area, the street outside someone's home, where your husband or your father was murdered. I just, I don't know. I just can't quite get past the idea. You could... I, I currently can't get past the idea uh, of the the callousness of the film production uh, guy who just says, oh, it's a film about the murder of your dad. <laughs> to Sean Lennon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is this scenario that you've concocted. <laughs> right, right, where, right. Where, where someone feels quite happily uh, able to just say that to Sean Lennon with no degree of self-awareness. <laughs> right, right, right. It's about the murder of your dad, but we do have craft, craft services. <laughs> exactly. Would you like a bagel? <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I, I think it's... Um, I mean, look, you're right. That scenario could never literally happen. I think I will defend this argument by saying that I know it could never, it wasn't literally going to happen that way. Yeah. But, you know, I just think it was a mental image that kept on going through my head. We know that, like, Yoko and Sean were not keen on the whole thing, unsurprisingly. Yoko always had the request that people don't sort of, not celebrate, but people don't sort of promote Mark Chapman's name. Uh, which was sort of unrealistic. People are always going to write and make films about him, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that intrinsically. But to just sort of 
It feels a little bit like shoving it in their faces. And yeah. there are, and there are other creative choices like the casting thing that we that that really deliberately ignored her wishes and you know that that bit is is just difficult to swallow you're right in the sense that no matter how um outrageous your imagination runs with the scenario <laughs> sean lennon just rocking up to this film production and being met with his dad's killer yeah i i, I think that it should be accepted as fact that the the tiniest proportion, the tiniest fractional degree of that experience happening is already too much that should happen, right? So whether it is him, even if it's just him finding out that it's even happening, that's just got to be um, awful, mm-hmm. right? So yep. obviously same for Yoko Ono. So from a from a moral perspective, the film doesn't actually have a leg to stand on that in that arena at all. It's just we, you know, we'll we'll talk around in uh, we'll talk in circles forever about whether or not that is a worthy enough compromise for creating a film that is set out to do uh, a particular thing, right? But we're not going to get to an answer on that. You mentioned earlier that uh, Yoko Ono had asked for Mark Chapman's name not to be uh, used or, or used widely or recognised. Um, this film does something that is uh, it feels very much deliberately in contrast to that wish. Yes, uh, which is the the casting of John Lennon in the film, the actor who plays him is a guy called Mark Lindsay Chapman. Yeah. Which, you know, there, there's some notes about the fact that uh, the director, J.P. Shaper, auditioned him for the role and is adamant that he was just the best person for it. He had some notes about his performance, which um, he has explained made him the best person for the role. Yeah. He has apparently, at the time, he asked how the actor wanted to be credited in the film. And the actor himself said he obviously wants to be credited by his own name. Yep. And that was what I'm quite adamant about that. Yep. And that is why that scenario happened. Yeah. I don't believe that. Right. <laughs> I don't really believe any of that. Because yeah. when you watch the film, John Lennon is barely in it at all. Yeah. very A very deliberate, creative choice made to not really focus on him ever. So you, you see him in profile. You see him. He's never center of frame. Yeah. Right, and he's he's barely in the movie at all, and exactly. he has like two lines or so. Right? And he's out, he's out of focus when he's being uh, there, when yeah, he's exactly. being filmed. Yeah. So uh, there are many, 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 many more choices of actor that could play that role. Yeah, and I think that you could argue that Mark Lindsay Chapman was the best of the actors that they auditioned yeah. for that. But I think a better argument would be that the production should have made the call to deliberately not cast him in that role because of because of just how bad taste that seemed. Yeah, and, and I think, so to give it specific context, so this guy, Mark Lindsay Chapman, had previous, so there's a film called uh, John and Yoko, A Love Story, which Yoko was sort of, uh, I forget how involved, but certainly she was consulted about the making of, and yeah. she certainly was consulted enough that she had some influence over the casting. This guy who was acting under the name of Mark Lindsay at the time, he was cast as John, seemed to be the best guy for the role, and then eventually Yoko found out that the guy's full name was Mark Lindsay Chapman, and she nixed his casting. 
uh, uh, because, because she said it would be bad karma bad for the karma, production, right? Yeah. Bad karma. So, I mean, it, whether you believe in karma so, or not, I, I, feel, was... I feel like that's an important thing to make because it's, right. it's not that Yoko was just like, oh, no, that, like, she had a gut reaction to that film. Yeah. It was more of a, you know, I guess like a spiritual belief in the in the, the, the fortune of the film that she was trying to make. Yeah. Like, you know. But, I mean, wh- whether you believe in karma or sort of numerology, you know, and yeah. the, the tarot and the various things that Yoko Ono uh, believed or believes in, it is absolutely right just to respect her wishes yes. by not casting a guy who remem- reminds her of her husband's murderer. So this guy, you know, it's not it, not his fault that that's his name, but he ended up not not being in that film because of that. So he uh, later auditions for Chapter 27, gets the job, and at no point does the director think... I'm making this film which depicts this the murder of this woman's husband. She she was very clear and adamant that it would upset her to have a guy with this name cast as my husband. Mm. Uh, but just went ahead and did it anyway. Yeah. And and Yoko obviously was not a consultant on this film. It's not like he had to do anything that she wanted, but he would have been fully aware of this and just chose to go ahead and do it anyway. And, and I would I would go so far as to say that it it feels like stunt casting i i I, you know it feels like this is the kind of film that you you don't want to you don't want to say that the film glorifies mark chapman at all no but it does feel like it's flirting with that a little bit And, and yeah and this 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 choice to cast Mark Lindsay Chapman as as John feels like it's kind of playing with that line deliberately. Yeah, of you course. Know, so, but but you know, there, there's there's one thing to say, oh, we found this guy to play who who, who we think it would be would make a great John Lennon, mm. and we're going to ignore Yoko Ono's wishes. Yeah, this feels like a deliberate choice to go for that guy because of of, of exactly that reason, um, because... and, and 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 something that they can use when they are marketing the film or or. You know, to to deliberately court the controversy that that they know the film is going to. Of course, um, get some publicity, you know. Yeah, and it's a, it, and it's a it's a small independent film. Um, you know, it's it, it is mainly getting made because Jared Leto is attached. I suppose you know that's it. him being attached as executive producer suggests that he sort of put some money and some star clout into it. But this is uh, this guy's. Um, I think you said to me earlier it was first and only directorial. Um, yeah. Piece. Yeah, yeah. So JP um, Schaefer, um, he he spent four years writing the script for the film, and then by all accounts, it, it got turned around when when he'd finished that, it got turned around very quickly into a film. Yeah, the film was released in two thousand and seven. I think since then he has directed an episode of, uh, or maybe he wrote it. I can't remember now. So he he wrote the film and directed this film. Um, he has one other credit to his name, uh, which is an episode of a TV show, but. Um, surprisingly, given the, the the profile that the film has, he he hasn't actually got another um, film credit to his name. Yeah. So I suppose if you put yourself in his shoes, this is a small production. He's got a decent sized star attached to it, so he's going to get a, a bit of press for it. But uh, well, and he's also going to get press for it because it is a film about the murder of John Lennon, of course. Um, but you know, what else can I do? I agree completely. When you say it's stunt casting, that is a, it, it, that's a really good description. It feels it feels like an assault in a way. Yeah. 
You know, it's it, it's it's very deliberate. There, there is no way that he is thinking this is the only guy who can play this role in which you barely ever see him and he says one line. Yeah, um, you stick a wig on anyone and get him yes. to do it. You know, yeah. it's um, I, it, I that's, just, and that's exactly the point. It's it, not like they, or it's not like the film is intending to have a, and which by the way, it could very reasonably do. Uh, it could very reasonably have a scene where the focus suddenly shifts to John Lennon. Yeah. And and you see him as the celebrity that we've been waiting for throughout the film. Yeah. Arrive at the Dakota and, and talk to fans, uh, one of whom is Mark Chapman. Mm. It doesn't, it decides not to do that. The, yeah. the, the film is very much always keeping focus on Mark Chapman. And yeah. therefore, John Lennon is a very much a background, at, you know, little more if not just an extra with a speaking part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a, uh, a high-profile decision deliberately made about a um, a very small role. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Should we move on to something a little bit more positive? Sure. I liked Lindsay Lohan in this film. Okay. You don't hear that a lot, do you? No, you don't <laughs> at all. No. Not, not for a while, at least. Um, so, Lindsay Lohan plays Jude Stein... Um, who is a, another John Lennon fan waiting outside of Dakota that uh, Mark Chapman meets, forms a sort of a, a sort of semi-friendly relationship with, and they they meet again later in the film and they go for some dinner, and then she gets a bit weirded out by him, understandably because he's a weirdo. Yeah, um, yeah. But I actually I I thought she she really brought a pleasantly impressive performance to her role. Yeah, I think all the same way. Well, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to say that I uh, noticed particularly whether she was good or bad. She's she's absolutely fine she's in it. There's um, adequate. She, she's <laughs> adequate. It, it, it's I would say uh, mid Lohan. I would say it's not it's not peak Lohan. It's mid to Lohan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's that's very good. Sorry, stuff, that's good. Stuff. Straight off the bat, there. <laughs> I um, uh, I will say, and I have to say, just just quickly, that I really liked her her friend. So Jude Stein is is based on a real person, as is her friend, who is waiting with her outside Dakota. The actress who plays her has to say two lines in the whole film, but one of them which yeah. I really really enjoyed, yeah. which is when the the pair of them. Uh, both her and Jude convinced Mark Chapman to to buy Double Fantasy, the John Lennon's latest album, uh, and her her friend just has this brilliantly like indignant way of of saying that Double Fantasy is flawless. She says it's flawless, really. It's it's flawless, and uh, it's just like a really like I just thought oh, that really captures that attitude that young fans have where they just won't hear a bad word said about their idol. Right, you know, yeah, it's just yeah. I just really love this this sort of like you should you should know this already. It's just like it's just better than you could have you could even dream. Yeah, um, and it's just like there's a lot of attitudes captured, and it's just one very simple <laughs> line. I, I thought that was great. Yeah, but yeah, but I think Lizzie Lohan um, actually uh, brings a lot to her role. She has considering this is at a time when Lizzie Lohan's name was. Very controversial mm. uh, in the terms of sorry, in terms of her career, she was a controversial figure in terms of her career. It was around that of, time, was it? It was around okay. that time, and you know, lots of sort of stories or, or post lots of stories about you know uh, drugs rehab going off the rails a bit as a as a child actor. Yeah, uh, and again, you know, talking about this now, 
in hindsight, maybe perhaps another example of some stunt casting because, you know, this is that kind of film that, that sort of courts that kind of controversy. But I think she's really good in it. I think she she plays that sort of like, you know, it's like a it's an innocent fangirl type of role. Yeah. Um, but also one that's actually quite warming and quite endearing. Yeah. Um, which, which isn't necessarily something that I think that people would have thought of about her. Yeah. Uh, at that time. Well, then, you know what? I always think that the people who are hanging around outside the Dakota in the 70s and then in 1980, which we see in this film, like they're an interesting bunch, aren't they? In terms of where they are in fandom. Because mm. they're not... They're, they're not... Too, well, I get, how old are these women in this? Maybe 21 or something like that, you know? They're not, they're not sort of... Uh, it, I don't get the impression that the people who are in real life hanging around outside the Dakota were sort of teenage fans. Mm. And I don't think uh, you get the odd weird obsessive, of course, but I don't think, I'm not sure also that they were the people who were going to Beatles gigs in 64 and, and screaming and were now grown up and hanging around outside Dakota. I get the impression it was just, it was New Yorkers who were just really, uh, bowled over by the fact that John Lennon had come to live in their city, and maybe they thought of him as more of as a celebrity than a musician because he hadn't actually made any music for five years by the, the you know the the point that we're talking about. Yeah. Um. And uh. And I suppose th- there's maybe a, I don't know, maybe more of a casualness to that. You know, I think it, it, John apparently really liked the fact with New York that like people knew who he was, but they wouldn't bother him that much. Mm. He could walk down. He could go and walk around Central Park, and a couple of people would say hello, but generally he wasn't getting mobbed or anything. He could go to that uh, that cafe and that Italian place that you see in Two of Us, yeah. um, and, you know, generally not be interrupted all that much. And it's nice that he sort of found that place where he wasn't uh, wasn't getting mobbed. And I, and I think um, the way she plays uh, Jude... Is probably quite um, representative of the kind of fan who was around at that time. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, she she's not a she's not a screaming fan. She's not you know Mark yeah. Chapman is the one who is like you know earnestly waiting and 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 you know uh, anticipating his meeting with John Lennon. She yeah. is someone who is is clearly a fan, but actually takes it in a stride a lot, and that's that's quite a, quite an interesting. Yeah, for that type of character to hate. Yeah. You're right. It, it definitely crossed my mind. Like what you know, the, just even the fact that her name is Jude. Obviously, she's based on a real person. But um, you know, like uh, Mark Chapman does at one point actually say "Hey Jude" without a, a, any any kind of um, iota of awareness about what that, <laughs> that yeah. phrase actually means. Yeah. Um, but he he does at one point say "Hey Jude," and my first thought was like maybe she's maybe her. She was born at a time when her mum could have named her Jude. No, wait, that those timelines don't work. Like I was, I was really mm. trying to figure out like how um, someone her age would be a fan of John Lennon waiting outside Dakota. Yeah, at uh, in in 1980. Yeah, and I think maybe it's just like a second generation thing. Like you know, she yeah. was she she wasn't around at a time. She wasn't old enough to enjoy the Beatles, but she grew up with the Beatles. Like as a yeah. as, as a kid, as as a lot of us still do now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think there is. So I think the 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 one scene that I, well, so there there are two scenes that I sort of find. There are three scenes. No, there are only, <laughs> there are only two. 
let's do the Spanish Inquisition thing. Um, the, um, the there are two scenes that are sort of remarkable as far as her character is concerned. So the second one is is um, when they meet Sean Lennon. Um, yes, but I want to talk first about the first one, which is when she and Mark Chapman go off for uh, dinner together, and what that descends into is um, him going on this big rant about sort of seizing the day and all this kind of stuff. And I felt at that point, uh, so she is sort of almost going along with it. And he's saying, why don't we both just run away together? Why don't we go to, and she's like, well, we can't go now. And she's like, why not? Why not? You can go now. Just do anything you want. Seize Mm. the day, you know? And, um, and I felt almost as if in that it's like, it's painting Mark Chapman as this sort of frustrated, inspirational figure, you know, who is just, um, he's living outside of society's boundaries, you know, and she's the one who's a bit like uh, straight and she's a bit wound up that she's not prepared to like drop everything and run away with this guy who's, you know, a bit weird and a bit mad. Um, And I think that there are, this is one of the points at which it kind of strays from, this guy, a guy who has mental health problems too. Like, like the way that scene is done, and I know it isn't literally suggesting that this guy is special and that we should all seize the day. And why can't we all follow Mark Chapman's example? I know it's not saying that, but it's just the way that scene is framed suggests it a little bit. I think. Disagree. <laughs> so, I I had a different reading of that scene. If I'm being yeah. honest. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> Just generally, I had a different reading of that scene. I thought that that was the whole seize the day thing wasn't necessarily him, even though he's explicitly saying and and giving that sentiment to to Jude in that scene. I felt like that was more him trying to find a reason, subconsciously or not, to get away from the scenario that he's he knows he's going to fulfill. Yeah, you know, throughout the film, there there are moments where he is presented as someone who might just change his mind at a moment's notice, and he knows he's 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 playing with this idea that is he feels like you know sometimes he feels like it's his mission, it's an ambition of his he wants to fulfill, but also equally he's pulling himself back from the brink of actually going through with it. And yeah. it feels like, you know, like we, we see later on in the film where he's kind of begging her to stay with him. And uh, we see later on where he, you know, after having befriended the, the Paul, um, the, the paparazzi, Paul Koresh. Um, yes, Paul Koresh. I mean, I, I think it's, it's based on him as a real like, character. I, I think they, they get away with it by saying it's based on his character, but it's not technically, oh, okay. that's not his actual surname in the film, although it's clearly based on the actual oh, okay, uh, photographer, Paul Koresh. Um, when, when he's, after he's befriended him, he's trying to get him to stay with him to keep him company that evening, the evening that where he is actually left alone and actually ends up going through with that murder. And there's an implication the film makes that he's trying to, like I say, subconsciously or not, find ways to prevent himself from going through this terrible plan. But doesn't that make him more sympathetic in a way? Like, um, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, and whether or not that's the right thing, the right thing or not. But I mean, yeah. you know, we we know from well, we know from research um, that he ha- had these feelings. Like he had self doubt about going through this plan. He'd already changed his mind once. You know, the film the film explicitly says that he came to Dakota once before, and then 
and obviously didn't meet John Lennon, didn't go through it, and then that is true. came back. That is true. But wh- whether he... Bear in mind that this film is based on a book that is interviews with Mark Chapman that was yes. d- done years and years later. Um, and so I'm not saying that makes it, it, it by default, uh, sympathetic to him. But if he says in those interviews, I really wanted to stop myself, I wanted you know uh, someone else to hang around with me, so I had a reason not to do it. Um, you know, I mean, bear in mind this guy is up for parole every every few years. Well, well, you know? what, what he actually says in those interviews, as far as I understand from the from the what what I could find out, is that he recalls trying to get um, this man that he met to stay, which presumably we we can take to be Jude, and he recalls trying to get Paul to stay with him as well that night. Right, and he says in those interviews that. If either of them had, he probably wouldn't have murdered John Lennon that night. Right. But there's nothing to say that he wouldn't have tried again another night. Yeah. Yeah. So, he, I, I, which is quite a, you know, to be fair, as someone who is up to up for parole, what is it, eleven times since the year two thousand and or two thousand or something? I don't. Know. So I think two thousand. So I think maybe he was initially sentenced to twenty. It was twenty to life. I think is what he got. So two thousand. So he's up for parole and he's been denied parole eleven times since then. Yeah. So for, for for someone that that you know was eligible for parole is is quite a matter of fact thing to say, right? Like you know, actually, it's quite quite honest to yeah. to say that it probably would have rented that night. But it does go to show. I think I think we could say that 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 is informative of his frame of mind at that time, in yeah. that he was taking signs to. To, to do or not do what his you know what what he felt compelled to uh, at that time yeah so so that scene where he's trying to get you know he's trying to tell um jude to seize the day and, and just let's just go somewhere i i kind of read as a he's giving her an opportunity to give him an out yeah um and the fact that she doesn't that that's when he sort of almost laughs to himself and says of course this isn't going to work yeah you know it's it's like him I, I took that moment to be like him saying, "Oh, I'm foolish to even try to stop this from happening because I, you know, this is something that's written in the stars." Kind of, yeah, like, I'm, I am fated yeah. to do this, so I'm I'm stupid to have even tried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I read it. Yeah, yeah. But um, you did say there were two scenes where he met uh, Jude. Oh yeah, I've forgotten. That. And obviously, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. quite a big, important one, which is probably the one that I found most stomach churning when I watched the film. I re- it, and I, I don't say that lightly. It really did make me feel quite ill about the film. Yes, like I thought it was, it was a very, very, very difficult scene to watch. Yeah. So um, Chapman meets Sean Lennon in Central Park. Uh, he's bit so he's five years old. And so he's being taken for a walk in Central Park by Helen Seaman, um, the nanny who worked for the Lennons. Now, that happened in real life when he was hanging around the Dakota. He did meet Sean Lennon. And I I forget what he... In the film, he sort of crouches down and speaks to him. Yes, he says, I have travelled from across the sea from Hawaii. Yeah. Um, And he like shakes his hand. Yeah. Yeah. Now that... um, Now, this is kind of where you come up against an interesting point about making films out of real events. Now that happened, and I don't know whether he said those words, but that event happened. And so there is one school of thought that says 
Well, if it happened, it's fair game. Stick it in the film. And, and not only fair game, but but you could argue it had to be in the film in order right. in order to, to show the full picture. Right, right, right. For uh, verisimilitude, you could say. You could say that. I, I might not. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, that is a valid argument to say that, yes, that is part of the story. It genuinely happened, and therefore you need to put it in the film. Like you, I found that scene very, very queasy. And again, I just thought to myself, Sean Lennon presumably has no memory of that because, A, he was five years old, and, B, this will have happened every time he went out for a walk with his nanny in Central Park. Like, fans would have come up and said nice things to him and he probably doesn't need to be reminded of the fact that his dad's murderer came and spoke to him on the day he murdered his dad um plus i don't know i mean there's so much of this there's a lot of points i've made in in this episode that make me think well yes but if you're going to make a a film about the real life murder of anyone yeah there are going to be that person's family is going to be exposed to it and have to not have to relive it but, exactly you know, that, it, yeah. you know, and, and this so, is this is exactly it's sort of an internal yeah. argument i have in myself about what's right and what's wrong yeah. when you're approaching a subject matter like this and also you couldn't i don't know if you can really argue whether this is a subject about which you shouldn't make a film about no i yeah. no i think it is completely reasonable to make a film about the murder of john lennon yeah. there's nothing wrong with that in principle yeah, yeah in principle yeah. i think the um the the other I mean, this has given the the film a huge amount of credit, which I don't necessarily feel like it deserves. Yeah. But what you could say about that scene as well is it, it really exposes... It's the only film... Uh, sorry, the only scene in the film, I think, that exposes how easy access was yeah. to, to, um, to, to Sean and also by by default to celebrities yeah yeah um you know it's you know everything else is you have to wait you know he he's waiting outside i mean it's it's that's one of the reasons why it's so um stomach churning because the whole film mark chapman is waiting outside dakota and it's uh it's 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 potluck hit and miss whether or not he's actually going to yeah actually get to meet john lennon and and carry out what he thinks he's gonna do yeah but just a stroll in the park yeah and he ends up meeting his son. And that's like, and it really, you know, the reason why it's stomach churning is because it's powerful, actually. Because yeah. that, that, that is a, a moment where you realise how vulnerable a, a five-year-old son of a celebrity is at that time who's just been sent out for a walk by his nanny. Yeah, and it, actually, you know, this is one of the points at which, you know, as I, you know, as both of us have said, the film does achieve what it sets out to do. Yeah. And actually having that scene in there as you say, is powerful. You know, it makes you realise that vulnerability. It definitely achieves what it sets out to do. And it's the point at which I, you know, as I have a couple of times now, acknowledge that I'm not being completely objective about this. Yeah. If this was the film about, a film about the murder of anyone else. That you don't care about. Yeah, no, but, yeah, not, not, yeah. not to, you know. No, no, no. But like a celebrity that you don't, you're not uh, a huge fan of. Yeah, right? it, like I probably would have felt that scene was very powerful, you yeah. know. And actually thinking about it, um, I hadn't really considered this, but it, it, but I know, so there were kidnap threats made. Uh, it, people did uh, sort of get in touch with the lens threatening to kidnap Sean and they really beefed up their security and mm. stuff, you know. And it was all around that time, maybe a little bit, maybe a year or two earlier, I forget. But And uh, so actually it surprises me that 
that even happened yeah. in real life um, because it, it's not because I think it, when they were first in New York they were quite casual about security they felt quite free and open and then there were a couple of things happened there was a guy who like got into their apartment by pretending to be like the VCR repairman oh. and um, you know there were a couple of things that sort of frightened them a little bit and they did beef up their security so it's that, it's really surprising that you yeah. know in, in 1980 that you know he that was could just even being happen. yeah 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 sure I don't think we've necessarily touched on uh, enough how much the film leans on uh, the capture in the rye as a narrative approach. So knowing that Mark Chapman was obsessed with the book, um, he very much identified with uh, Holden Caulfield, the protagonist of that book. The film seems to take a steer from that book about how to present itself. So right from the start you have this quite you know we talked about the opening voiceover the 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 narration where he talks about his parents but all the way through the film it is narrated in first person yeah um and i and i think that is inspired by the way that that book is written i think that's a deliberate choice to to align the film with 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 the book yeah Um, and and the way he talks about himself the language he uses some of the phrases he uses i I think that that is that's a, a deliberate you know, artistic choice to to make that, yeah. Which I think is, I think has has value. I think that's actually quite a quite a neat trick that the film does. It doesn't have to do that. Like, you know, in terms of Mark Chapman identifying with Holden Caulfield, actually having an entire film from his perspective that reads and sounds like uh, the book he's obsessed with, and it's quite a, a neat thing, like neat trick that the the film pulls off. Yeah, yeah. And, and like from a filmmaking perspective, you're absolutely right. It is quite a neat trick. But again, like it just brings me back to the point of this is a guy who is obsessed enough with the character of Holden Caulfield to want to be him. He used to sign his name Holden Caulfield on um, certain, I think maybe when he checked into one of the hotels, he signed his name in the register. Holden as he Caulfield. does in the book as well, the, his, his last book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right, he signs and leaves. So actually... In doing this and uh, and framing it in in the way you've just described, arguably is the film giving him exactly what he wants, you know, yeah. demonstrating that, that there are parallels between him and the character of Holden Caulfield. This is this is the thing. I mean, listen, this is the entire crux of it. everything we've been talking about. <laughs> yeah. I get I get that, and uh, and uh, <laughs> and so you know, this is why I keep on coming back to this point: is that. No matter the artistic choices that this film makes, and it does make some good artistic choices, you know, this guy, by some accounts, what is the quote? You know, I was a nobody until I killed the biggest somebody in the world. And actually, mm. maybe that is a line from the the other film, The Killing of John Lennon, or maybe it's something he actually said. I'm not completely sure, but I think it does uh, sum up the things he said immediately afterwards that he uh, wanted that he felt like he was a nobody and he was insignificant and actually uh, killing a famous person was the way to make himself feel important in some way and actually are uh, when when you when you do things like that you you accord him some kind of special status through having this famous charismatic charismatic actor playing him you uh you give him a voiceover in which his voice is 
really um, sort of mystical sounding, you know, and it's like it's just talking in like a really interesting way, like I'm a really interesting guy. All these choices it makes, and as you say, it does him the favour of um, what he always wanted, this idea of being Holden Caulfield. It, It equates him with it in those stylistic choices it makes. Does it not, in a way, just play into his hands? I, I mean, I really want to say disagree again, but <laughs> I'm so sorry. Please but, do. But I think you would be right if the film depicted Mark Chapman as wanting to kill John Lennon because he wanted to do it in order to, to achieve fame. Yes, okay. But the film doesn't do that. You're right, it doesn't. The film um, is actually, it goes to some lengths to... Uh, talk about the reason why he wants to call John Lennon was because he saw him as someone he was a big fan of and then saw someone uh, and, and then found him to be someone that he decided to be was a phony or a fake yeah, yeah. and and actually ridiculed some of his religious beliefs. Yeah. So, you know, to take a step back, um, the film posits Mark Chapman as a Beatles fan who became uh, a big fan of, of John Lennon. He was also very religious and took issue with John Lennon's famous um, more popular than Jesus quote. Mm-hmm. Also, later on, took issue with, this is in real life, by the way, took issue with the lyrics to to God, the song God, where he yep. says, don't believe in God, don't believe in Beatles. Yeah. So th- those things he found, much happened, was, was triggered by. Yeah. And then uh, what the film does explicitly say uh, is, is where... John, you know, he he talks about the song "Imagine" and "Imagine There's No Possessions," and then explicitly goes on to say, "This is a guy that he has millions of pounds, yachts, countryside, you know, mm. um, and 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 all of this adds up to this idea of John Lennon is a big phony, he's yeah. a fake person, yeah. and that that opinion of John Lennon or that anger uh, of what he thinks John Lennon is is informed by the capture in the rye and the Holden Caulfield being in." Um, disenchanted with with people in his life that he feels are also fake and phony. Yeah. So it's kind of like a it's a it's a build up of those two things. I think I think there is a reason why he is targeting John Lennon because he feels he's hypocritical, but also that's you know the, the, the how he articulate articulates those emotions. I think is informed by this this obsession he has with with Catcher in the Rye, where where sort of similar themes are explored. So I I don't think the film is is doing anything wrong in exploring it through the lens of Catcher in the Rye because I don't think that that's giving him what he wants yeah. necessarily. It, it makes sense to do that because that seems to be his motive in the first place. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's sort of holding up a mirror to his mental state. Yes, yeah, It's yeah, reflecting exactly, it through yeah. the lens of his mental state. Uh, I, I will, And just on that point as well, I will say I particularly enjoyed when Jude asks... Mark Chapman if he wants to go and watch a film with them and his answer is basically to laugh it off and he says oh I hate films and I hate actors yeah. and actors are just standing around like they're acting and they just know how good they are acting they just want you to know it it's so phony yeah, yeah, yeah. and no one is watching that and not thinking that's exactly what you're doing right now right lessons. actors are so phony yeah, exactly. drinking pints of ice cream to <laughs> put on <laughs> exactly right but no, no one's watching that scene and not thinking of Jared Leto right no one has taken everyone who watches that scene is taken out of it and being like well this is exactly what you're you are an actor saying this about actors yeah 
surely. Oh, but he's so deep into the character, he, is, though, so he doesn't yeah. even know he's I bet, saying I bet it. he's never thought about that himself. No, he wouldn't even make the connection. Not at all. No. Uh, one last thing I was to ask you about. Yep. Did you notice anything interesting, and I, I say this as someone who rarely does, um, about the film's score? Uh, yes. I think that... It reminded me a little bit of... There's a couple of actual things that remind me of two of us in this, actually, and not just because it's set in the same location, but there's some of the cinematography feels a little bit a little bit 90s to me. Uh, not in a way that makes it look horribly outdated, but, um, uh, but a little bit. But also the film's score reminded me, which is not overused, by the way. There isn't an awful lot of score in the film, I don't think. But there... There are bits in it where there are definite overt beatly tones mm. in the score. Yeah. And in particular, there's a bit that sounds a bit like it's pastiching within you without you. Yes. And so when that was done at the start of Two of Us, where there are, uh, you know, a bit of sitar comes into the score and, um, and you're like, oh, this is a film about the Beatles. They're putting like a beatly thing into the score. Fair enough. Yeah. And then... But I think that's a very different prospect to this is a film about one of the Beatles being murdered. Yes, exactly. It's, it's yeah. Beatly. Let's put and, some Beatles stuff in the score. You and know. and uh, I think you have to assume that that's deliberate. I think you have to assume that the... the, the Is this the stunt scoring? <laughs> <laughs> well, because I, but I, don't, I don't think that it's a coincidence that you watch that film and you think, well, oh, this is... And, and also, um, the only other one I noticed, so Within Without You, certainly, it, it seems to be like a main theme. I think it appears twice in the film yeah. where, um, where, where this, this main melody plays and it feels very much um, in keeping with the, the main melody of Within Without You. Yeah. Um, there's also um, a bit in the film where... You have this kind of pulsating high and low strings, which sounds very much like the um, Mellotron opening to Strawberry Fields. Oh, found, right. Didn't notice just, actually, but, yeah. but like, um, it just you know what I mean when I when I said it like pulsating fields. Yes, like, I do. Yeah. Um, so there, there are a couple of. I think you have to assume that there is whether it's achieving what it set out to there or not. You have to assume that I think the composer has done that deliberately because it's too much of a coincidence for it not to be the case. But you are right. It doesn't feel like it's appropriate for the subject matter of the film. Yeah, it lends it a sort of almost fun pastiche yes, tone. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which like spot is the tune. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good whilst, way of thinking about it. Yeah. yeah. Mark Chapman is waiting for John, and whilst we're all waiting, why not play a little game of? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's very it's a, it's an odd odd choice, I think. So. Yes, it is. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about chapter 27 before we wrap up? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we have successfully covered chapter 27. Um, I'm glad we wholeheartedly agreed that it is a somewhat controversial, but ultimately middling film that has both positive and negative points. This reminds me a lot <laughs> of how uh, I, I always used to wrap up essays at university <laughs> where, the, where the entire point was to put across the arguments from both sides. And my conclusion, without fail, was uh, some people think that Chapter 27 is a, an interesting investigation into the mental state of Mark Chapman. Other people think it is uh, exploitative. One thing is for sure, debate is certain to rage throughout the ages. 
The end. <laughs> you ended all of your essays with certain to rage throughout the ages. That's I mean, quite a specific phrase to, to use. I would, I mean, I would... You'd mix it up a bit. I'd mix it up a bit, yeah, but bas- basically, yes. Okay, well, if you'd like to uh, rage your debates throughout our social media platforms, then feel free to look us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are Beatles Films Pod. Uh, on most of those platforms and also if you enjoyed this episode and enjoyed us talking about chapter 27 and any of our other episodes then please feel free to leave us a review we would love to hear you write very good things about us to help us out otherwise we will see you next week for another episode thanks for listening and bye 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 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.